couple of uh, dates to put on your calendar, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to just climb right in. Well, let me first ask, does anybody have their chapter 9, verse 12, verse memorized? Anybody? Not verse 21. Not Abraham or uh, Noah drank too much and laid naked in his tent. Not that one. Let's go back and look at that again. I was looking back at my notes today and went, ooh, I need to go back and memorize that. So I think I've got it, but I don't want to be the only one that has it. Anybody else? Anybody learn it? I had a special prize for it. Okay, let's, let's see. Yeah, give it a shot. Give it a shot. The, this is the sign of the covenant. Yeah. Right. Yeah, or four or, let me see, let's see, nine, tw- nine, twelve. Okay, I'm in Exodus. Yeah, that doesn't work. Four all? Okay. Uh, let's plan on learning 13 also, because they just kind of go together. You know, because, you know, I've set my bow. That's kind of the the focus. If, you, if it's just ver- verse 12 by itself, this is the sign of the covenant, the reason we wanted to learn this verse as families is because how many times you've been driving around and you've seen a beautiful rainbow out the window and the kids say, or you say, oh man, look at that rainbow. And how sweet will it be to make that connection between this passage and that rainbow? And as families, to even say that out loud. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I, or this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that's with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So next week, let's plan on adding in verse 13. So chapter 9, verse 12 and 13, just some scripture memory that we'll work on on Wednesday nights. Let me pray and we'll climb in. Lord, we, t- we give this time to you in these next few minutes. We just pray that you will open our eyes to the gravity of this story. Lord, we um, appreciate our childhood engagement of these stories or maybe um, some of our past experiences with this story. But Lord, I just pray that you will just um, open our eyes to the living story that testifies to the gospel and to the work of Christ and to the remnant that you're preserving through a sea of death. And I just pray that that will just give us a picture of where we stand in the redemptive story, and where we walk, and where we live and breathe, that we can see ourselves as part of something, and preparing for something. Lord, we thank you for this Wednesday night. We count it uh, special. There's nothing ordinary about it when we gather and we open your book, and we engage you, and uh, we just pray that you'll open it to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, we are in chapter 9, and tonight I'm hoping that we can finish, uh, we'll finish chapter 9, but what I want to do tonight as kind of part of our closure for the flood account is to look at um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven things, kind of theological truths that have to do with the flood. Um, when I say theological truths, don't be alarmed by that. It, they're not academic. 
You know, I used to, I have to confess to you, when I heard anybody say anything about theology or anything theological, I thought, man, what a bore. That's so impractical. And what I've realized since then is that proper practice, practicing rightly, doing rightly, comes from thinking rightly. So you have to have your hand, hand and head and heart and hands around the truth before you can then go do something and walk in it. So it's very practical. It invades every day of the week. And um, so I'm, I'm excited about our opportunity to kind of close with that. This, the place where I'm going to pick up is in verse 18 in chapter 9. And I've kind of titled this The Fall Part 5. What we realized last week is kind of like the tumble, you know, because the first few parts of the fall were really, the fall is just the initial event where um, mankind fell in, in the garden. But then the tumble continued with Cain murdering Abel, with Lamech murdering somebody and then making a song about it, singing it to his women, check me out. And then there's Mankind's Fall, part four, and then part five is the whole Mankind mulligan, uh, the do-over for Mankind. Not where God is doing over, but where Mankind has this sort of opportunity to restart, kind of a whole new creation, and that's the flood account. And um, this is actually kind of a continuation of that. This is kind of a next fall. Uh, Verse 18, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. Now, that's important. You'll, you'll see that later. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these people of the whole earth, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Just a little side note for you. We'll see this more as we, we continue the to study tonight. From Ham and his son Canaan came the Egyptians. Just kind of make a little mental note, or you can write these down. The Egyptians, the Philistines, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and the Canaanites. Now, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, what what does that tell you about Ham and Canaan? You hadn't even really read about what happened to them yet, but since you hear the offspring of Ham, if you're familiar with these these Egyptians, Philistines, Babylonians, Assyrians, and Canaanites, what does that tell you? He's bad news. And really, since we're looking at two different lines that started from the consequences of the fall. What were those two lines? The offspring of Satan, the seed of the serpent, and then the seed of the woman. That's what the whole book of Genesis is about, these two lines. Cain, Abel, who's replaced by Seth, um, Lamech, uh, Enoch. I mean, there's, it just goes through just line after line, picture after picture where there's this parallel between God's people and those who aren't God's people. And this ham has given us a little indication in Canaan that maybe they're the seed of the serpent, okay, from all these guys that end up coming from him. Okay, let's continue. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And ham, and again, he points out the father of Canaan, It's like this ominous reference to him being the daddy of Canaan. It's the second time he's mentioned, oh yeah, he's the daddy of Canaan. It's going to be important as this unfolds. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. You can just see that whole thing unfold. We'll look at that here in a little bit more detail here in a moment. Then Shem and Japheth, the other two brothers, there's Ham, Shem, and Japheth, took a garment laid it on both of their shoulders, and they walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. 
They're completely turned away from their father. They've got this covering over their shoulder where he's laying there naked. That's southern for naked, N-E-double-K-E-D, naked. He's laying there naked, and they back up, and they just kind of drop it over him, never even really looking at him, as opposed to our boy Ham. Now, let me just, just share with you. Noah started what's called viticulture. That's the growing of vines. He was the first guy to ever do that. And then he also started viniculture, which is the producing of wine. They kind of go together, viticulture and viniculture. There's some sort of period of time that's taken place since the flood uh, because now there's a grandson. And what's his name? Or at least one grandson, Canaan. That's right. We know Canaan. We've heard his name twice already. And it looks like Noah had a little bit too much to drink, and he ends up in any double K-E-D. And if you really think about it, those often go together, drunkenness and nakedness. And there's plenty of warnings about excess and abuse of alcohol and nakedness. How many of you have ever been to Mardi Gras? A couple of you have been to Mardi Gras, you know what I'm talking about. Drunkenness and nakedness. Man, with drunkenness goes people flashing people all over the place in the streets. It's public thing that's just, just horrible. But this is what happened to Noah. He got drunk and he's laying naked. Noah's excess leads to Noah's nakedness leading to Ham's sin. A little leaven leavens the loaf, right? I mean, would Ham have sinned if Noah hadn't had too much to drink? He probably would have found some other way to sin. It sounds like he kind of a knucklehead anyway. But Noah was the one that fell here first. He's the one that sinned first, and it led to Ham's sin. And when you see things like this, you can understand why a church, a people of God, should be serious about church discipline. Because one thing does lead to another, and sin begets sin. And when someone, especially living in a place of rebellion, that's got to be reckoned with and it's got to be dealt with. But in this case, Noah's sin led to Ham's sin. It says that Ham saw Noah. And in the original language, it's kind of hard to really understand what happened. But in the original language, that word saw is the word that's used for, like, studying searchingly. Like, in the Marine Corps, we had the term scoping. Like, man, uh, we were scoping them out. We were studying them. And that's apparently what Ham did when he walked in on Noah. We don't know what the heart behind that was. I saw some people refer to it, maybe a homosexual tendency or a voyeurism. or I don't know what it was, but it wasn't right. Just alone by itself, Ham walks in on his naked dad, and he's studying him, scoping him out. And then one thing leads to another. He goes outside, and he says, hey, bros, come check this out. So he adds this voyeurism or whatever it was to, or he adds something to that. What did he add to him when he says, hey, bros, come check this out? What is that? Okay, what else does that sound like to you? Disrespect and almost a mocking. Let me mock my naked, drunk father. And then you see this contrast between Ham and Japheth and Shem, this stark contrast between one brother and the other two, where the other two show extreme respect for their father, and they went out of their way to protect their father's name. It's a great example for youth. I... Scott and I were kind of chewing on some, some things with the youth, and he was considering going to James because it's very difficult to, you know, the youth are a little bit more sporadic in their attendance on Wednesday nights, so it's hard to really move through a book together, but we decided we need to stick with that so parents could talk with youth about our parallel journey through Genesis. But one of the things that the youth are going to hit when they get there is this picture of how to honor your father even when he's not honorable. Shem and Japheth honoring their daddy. 
when <laughs> he's sprawled out naked and drunk. He's not honorable for the moment, but yet they're doing the right thing in honoring their dad. Now, verse 24, Noah awoke from his wine and knew that his youngest son, or knew what his youngest son had done to him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan. Who's Canaan? That's his grandson. That's Ham's son. Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Now, you've got to see this movement because this is all going to come around on one of these theological things that I think is just the richest reality that we can walk, walk away with that invades our breakfast table and our bedrooms and our dens as we talk and engage and go through life. And this is this movement. Look at it again. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Okay, these are three brothers. Shem be blessed, let Canaan be his servant, and may God enlarge Japheth. Okay, enlarge him and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. This is all going to come around. You're going to see why this is so important. And let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the day of, days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Now, we all saw this already. Who was cursed for Ham's sin? Canaan grandson. This is going to come up again in this Dib series. We're going to have a whole sermon dedicated to the consequences of daddy's sin on sons and grandsons and families. And this trickle-down reality of the sins of the father really being visited, at least the consequences, on the rest of the family for generations. And it works, as it works in a negative way, it also works in a positive way that you can, too, leave a legacy and a heritage of faithfulness in the other direction. But in this case, Ham's sin leads to Canaan's curse, and uh, we're going to consider that more in the next few weeks. What is the curse? Look at it. A servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. What this means is that he will be the lowest of slaves. Okay, I just want to remind you of who this was or who the offspring of Canaan was. He will be the lowest of slaves. Remember who they were? The Egyptians, the Philistines, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and the Canaanites. That ought to kind of make you go, hmm. One of those things that, things that make you go, hmm. That's one of those if you really start thinking about it. The lowest of slaves. We're going to come back around to that too because that's an important thing that we're going to consider. The curse placed on Canaan is linked to the curse placed on the serpent. In 3.14, the consequences of the, the fall is that the serpent will be crawling on his belly. He, too, is going to be the lowest of low. And there's also a direct curse placed on Canaan. The only other time that there's been a direct curse placed on someone has been on Cain. Adam and Eve didn't even get a curse placed on them. Creation was cursed, but they were not cursed individually and as a person. But Cain was, and then so is this guy, Canaan. It's appropriate name, too. Now, from Shem came the Israelites. Now, it's taken me really some scribbling to kind of figure all this out. So if you don't bring pen and paper, grab a pen out of the pew back in front of you and just try and kind of visualize this. From Canaan, the cursed grandson, his daddy was Ham, comes all the Assyrians, the Babylonians, uh, the Egyptians. From Shem, the one who's blessed, 
primarily come the Israelites. Okay, who's, who's the Alpha Shem? Shemite? No, go further. More recent. The Alpha Shemite. Jesus. That's right. Jesus is the Alpha Shemite. Okay? That's pretty good, though. Abraham would be kind of the pre-Alpha. Now, from Japheth will come all the other folks, the Gentiles, looking at you and me. Unless there's some Jews in here or some Shemites or maybe some Hamites. But I think most of us can identify with the Japheth line and... Um, We are identified as the Gentiles. Now, God elects the line of Shem to rule the earth and to crush the serpent. And God chooses, really, who he will choose. Why didn't he choose Japheth? Remember, there's two brothers that did the right thing. Exactly. How can he do that? Man, what about Japheth? Japheth is just going to be enlarged, but it looks like Shem is going to get this primary blessing. How, How can you do that, God? Well, he can do that because he's God. And because he created Shem and Japheth, and he can do as he wants and do as he wills. Here's some other examples where God does what he's going to do in the really pictures of election and pictures of God's sovereignty. He picks Abraham, not Nahor. He picks Isaac, not Ishmael. Who was the eldest? Ishmael. He picks Jacob, not Esau. Who was the eldest? Esau. He picks Judah, not Joseph, or Reuben. Who was the oldest? Reuben. Who was really the coolest? Joseph, man. I'm going to say Joseph all day long. If anybody's deserving, I'm going to say Joseph. That man had more crazy things happen to him, and he ended up on top. But yet, he's not the one chosen. That's not the one that Jesus' line continued through. Who was it? Judah. How can he do that? Well, he can do that because he's the creator and because he's God. He also chose Ephraim not Manasseh. Ephraim and Manasseh were the sons of Joseph. You remember the story where Joseph brings them to Jacob? Jacob is about to die. Jacob reaches out his hand for her. Joseph leans, leads them up there. He leads um, Manasseh on his left so that he would end up on Joseph's right so that he would get the blessing. And Ephraim is on his left so he would be on, or whatever way. You, you can hopefully envision this. I'm having a difficult time sorting this out. I remember when I preached it, I had a hard time sorting this out. But then at the last minute, he goes like this. Whoop! He does the divine switcheroo, and he blessed Ephraim, not Manasseh. And it's such a great picture that God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He picks the least likely. Anybody that thinks the doctrine of election is the reason for somebody to walk around proud check me out, I'm one of the elect, has not read their Bible. (laughs) He takes the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He picks the least likely. And this was a great picture of that. Now, as to the theological so what's of the flood, here's the first one. The flood, okay, we're finished with chapter 9. This is the theological uh, events or theological realities of the flood that I really want you guys to, to get. The flood is foreshadowing of the end of the earth and the resurrection of the saints. The flood is foreshadowing of the end of the earth and the resurrection of the saints. It's a picture of the destruction of the seed of the serpent and the earth he has corrupted. Also, there's a picture of the preservation of the offspring of the woman through a renewed earth. Now, here's a question for you. The next time creation is destroyed, it will be with what? Fire. 
We're going to look at those verses in a minute. But the, remember, the bow is a promise of what? I will not destroy the earth with flood again. <laughs> it doesn't say that he will never destroy the earth again. Because there's destruction is coming. And that destruction is coming with fire. And here, the cursed earth will be destroyed again. And the offspring of the woman, those who are reborn from above. You remember Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus? Nicodemus says, hey, Jesus, how are you doing all these great tricks? He doesn't even answer him. He says, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be reborn from above. That's the, the offspring of the woman. And they, us, hopefully, by faith, trusting subjunctively, <laughs> will inherit a whole new heavens and a new earth. Man, that's why this is a picture of the salvation story. Let's look at, at three verses. Turn to Matthew 24. <clears throat> Each of these incorporate the flood account. So it's so appropriate. I have to tell you, part of the reason I'm so excited about these theological implications is because I heard the, the flood story my whole life, and I never really connected it to the gospel. It was just kind of a, a kid's story. While I treasured it, man, I mean, I don't know if we did this on any of our kids. It seemed like we did. On one of our kids, we decorated their baby room with Noah, didn't we? We didn't? I, I didn't pay attention to that, you know. We might as well have trains or something, Noah or trains or something. But that, you know, that happens a lot. It's a cute story, man. But, man, it's so much more than that. Listen to this from Matthew chapter 24, verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. This is talking about the return of Christ. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now jump down to verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only, as were the days of Noah. <laughs> That's why we can read this story and see the gospel in it. As were the, were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. What's that a picture of? Eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage? Man, they were living large. They're just living. They're just living life. They're, you know, we've talked about that Jesus came and he walked at three miles an hour. You know, we have a three-mile-an-hour God, but yet we're running about 75, and that the people of God need to slow down. And the picture is that they're going 75. They're eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. They're just busy. It's just busyness. And that's the context for the flood. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when it started raining. That's my insertion, because we know that happened on the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, people of God, Noah families, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. That's, that's one snapshot. Let's look at Luke. Luke 17. This is kind of a parallel passage, but it gives us a little bit different angle on it. 
Luke chapter 17, verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. There we go again. It's more than a kid's story. They were eating and drinking and loving life and living large and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was, it was in the days of Lot, they were also living pretty large in those days. They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. They're just, they're about the issues of life, right? It sounds like that's what all they were about. They weren't about readying for faithfulness or readying for God to come or God's judgment, really. But on that day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained. Isn't that ironic? He's talking about Noah and the flood, and here he's talking about a different kind of rain, a rain of fire and sulfur from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who's on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Now look at 2 Peter chapter 3. It's back in the back. Page 1019 of your pew Bible. Listen to this passage, first 13 verses of chapter 3. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up you, your sincere mind by way of reminder. That's what we're doing tonight. We're doing exactly what this letter, what Peter is hoping this letter will do. Stirring you up, or stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? Oh, He said He's going to come back? Well, where is He? It's kind of like the scoffing of, where's the rain, Noah? Ha ha, you guys are silly and crazy. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately over overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged. What does that mean? Flooded. This is talking about the flood. They forget that God promised through Noah's preaching that this would happen, and it happened. And they also forget that this has been promised that Christ is going to come back, and it will happen. That existed what that was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. There it is. Being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. The sort of patience he's talking about here is the same sort of patience that he gave Noah to build the ark. Over how long did it probably take him to build that ark? About 100 years. And all the while, and it looked like it was a period of time before that too, that he's letting people respond, giving them an opportunity to respond 
to Noah's preaching. Peter refers to Noah as a preacher and a herald of righteousness. So he must have been preaching. And yet they're not responding. But yet we have a graceful, redemptive, benevolent God that's giving them an opportunity. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and all the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, that's an appropriate word given that we're talking about the flood, what sort of people ought you be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening and coming of the day of the Lord? Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt away as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Man, this picture right here, what sort of people ought you be in lives of holiness and godliness, knowing that he promised that it was going to rain through Noah, and what happened? It rained. And knowing that he promised that the Son of Man is coming back, we ought to look back on that and go, man, it's imminent. It is the next event in redemptive history. (laughs) I mean, it's imminent. I'm not going to say it's tomorrow or next week, but I know that it's coming. And we ought to be, the people of God ought to be living expectantly, waiting for the hastening, or excuse me, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. If you want to connect Sunday's message to this verse, hastening the day of the Lord, how can the family hasten the day of the Lord? Sing, ascribe, declare, tell, say, Uh, bless, get on our knees, worship, get on our face, that when we're practicing those verbs and when we're collecting adjectives along the way, that the, the, and, and all the trees are singing and the oceans are slapping against the seashore and they're crashing and they're saying, go family, that the family is escorting in the kingdom of God. Do you realize that when the family worships that we're hastening the coming of the day of the Lord? Man, that ought to just give you a high view of family. God has a sweet, unique interaction with the family. And this flood account should really awaken us. It should really just quicken us to the gravity of the reality that we are in a a redemptive story. It's not something outside of us. We're neck deep in it right now. No pun intended. I mean, we're wading right now, and the water's rising. That's the picture that we ought to have. When you consider what it must have been like to watch the rain fall, in Noah's time, maybe seeing it for the first time. Man, what is that? Ooh, man, what, what is that stuff? That uh, tastes like water. <laughs> That's kind of neat. But then when you consider the rainfall, and then you consider that the water's kind of starting to rise, you're like, oh, man, my shoes are getting wet. This is kind of weird. And it starts to kind of go into your house, and then you see Noah and his family kind of stepping on the ark, and they're waving goodbye to you. And then all of a sudden the door shuts. The Bible tells us that God shut the door. And he separates his remnant from the wicked people. And he preserves his remnant. Can you imagine what that was like? That desperation is what those who have and are rejecting Christ will face forever. (laughs) That moment of desperation that those people had before they drowned while they're trying to swim after the ark. Hey, man. Of course, nobody would know how to swim. Uh, maybe they had bodies of water, but I just don't expect that water sports are really a big thing in that day at that point. No boats. You know, there's no skiing. There's no going out to the lake. So probably nobody knew how to swim. But somebody may have survived for a few moments, but that just lasted for a few moments. Imagine that desperation for eternity. Man, that's what's in store for the people that reject Christ. 
That ought to quicken us to the reality, and we ought to remember and live accordingly. Now, the second theological point is much shorter. Look, since we're right here in, in First Peter or Second Peter, turn over to First Peter, verse three, <clears throat> chapter three. Excuse me, verse eighteen. This is a very brief theological point, but it's one worth enjoying, especially as Baptists. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. That's what I was talking about a minute ago. We have a long-suffering, patient God. When his patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you know this, but baptism is a picture of Noah and his family on the ark, out there bobbing in the middle of all worldwide ocean. I didn't connect that dot until just a couple years ago and I was preparing for a baptism and I'm searching around trying to understand baptism and I'm like, whoa, Noah connected to the, the ark? Noah connected to baptism? Man, that, it's all, all connected. This whole Bible has such integrity. This picture of Noah and the flood is a theological picture that we can appreciate in the picture of baptism. I, I've talked with some of our recent new members who have family members, kids that are, are in the process of kind of believing. There's this new um, genesis of faith that seems to be taking place. And, and I've challenged them, and we've done this before, where fathers baptize their kids. How cool is that? Some of you have some kids back there in those, in those rooms right now that you'll have the privilege of baptizing someday. And remember this story. Read it to your kids in preparation for that. Let me, let me tell you the story of Noah and the flood, guys. And sit down with them and say, there's what's in store. This is a picture of Noah and his family being preserved as a remnant. The next theological point. The flood aftermath interprets the past and it educates the future. Okay, this is the point that I really was excited. I mean, I was excited about all these, but this one was something I was really excited about, where we live in the tents of Shem. Let me explain that. Noah's curse was on Canaan, okay? And his blessing is on Shem and Japheth. And that curse on Canaan slash, well, really Ham, but Canaan specifically, and his offspring. And the blessing on Shem and Japheth help us understand his redemptive history over the ages. And they will educate us on where we are in the redemptive story. Noah curses Canaan with being the lowest of servants to Shem. And ironically, in the world's eyes, how did it really happen? Remember who the offspring of Ham were? Who were they? Canaan? Egyptians? And what other unique group come into play in the life of Israel? Babylonians. Also the Assyrians, because the Assyrians raided their land. But who, who was Israel enslaved to? I mean, we, we studied it before, this famous event in the life of Israel. Egypt. And then in Babylon. Remember they're sitting around in Babylon? The old Willie Nelson song, By the Rivers of Babylon, where we sat down, there we wept. I mean, they were enslaved in Babylon, too. That's not a, that's a song. <laughs> uh, you might think, man, Willie wrote some cool songs. That's a, actually a psalm in the Bible that he was just singing. 
But it's interesting here that it says that this offspring of Canaan is going to be the lowest of slaves to Shem's offspring. And who's Shem's offspring? The, the uh, Israelites. And it really, in the eyes of the world, is the other way around. And it ought to just be a picture to us that God's kingdom is a contrary kingdom in every respect. If you look at something, or if the world looks at something and says, man, that's awesome, then it's probably not awesome in the eyes of the kingdom. Almost as a rule. I don't know of an example that's not. In the eyes of the kingdom, the first is last and the last is first. In the eyes of the kingdom, it's invisible. The kingdom of God is the rule of, God's in the heart, the rule of God in the hearts of men. You can't really see that. It's invisible. It's not represented by a big, beautiful facade on a building. You can have big, beautiful facades and have a bunch of dead people inside. That is a reality. The kingdom of God is just contrary. It's just different. And the Lord of the kingdom of God did what? He, cru- he was crucified. He washed feet. It's an altogether contrary kingdom. And this is a great picture of that. As Noah prophesied, the Japhethites are enlarged. Well, let me go back just just to make you appreciate this. God's ways are different. The kingdom of God is contrary. The real slavery of Canaan as a picture of unbelieving world is to who? To sin and Satan. That's right. That's the real slavery. In the eyes of the world, it's the offspring of Shem who's the slave. In the eyes of the kingdom, who's the real slave? Canaan's offspring. They're enslaved to sin and Satan. You remember what Jesus said, if you're truly my disciples, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's the freedom he's talking about. The freedom from sin and Satan. And that can only happen through the Alpha Shemite. Now, as Noah prophesied, the Japhethites, look around, us, Japhethites, that's us. As he prophesied, the Japhethites are enlarged and actually outnumber the Shemites. When Paul leaves the Shemites, the Jews, and goes to preach to the Japhethites, the Gentiles, the New Testament church takes off and just permeates the Roman Empire and actually outnumbers the Shemites, just like Noah's prophecy. I mean, do you see the gravity of that, how that's all lived out? This Bible just goes whoosh. And then today, if you look at the church, the seed of the woman and the heirs to Abraham's covenants are mostly who? Japhethites. That's crazy. Right here in a prophecy from Noah where he's chapped because his son comes in scoping him out while he's naked and drunk. Tell me God is not this incredible God that turns lemons to lemonade. That is a bowl of lemons right there. And he turns it into a lemonade of a promise where here we stand enjoying the covenant because of that whole event and God's prophetic word through that, through Noah. Romans eleven sixteen through 24 is a good place to go. Let's go there. It's a picture of this, and I want us to see it and connect it. Romans eleven sixteen. 16. <clears throat> I'm going to start in 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot... Now, he's writing to the church at Rome. Who are those going to be mostly? Japhethites, Gentiles. Okay, It could be us. You might as well put Greenvilleites in there. Japhethites. If you, some of the branches were broken off, and you... Or excuse me, if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, that's us, were grafted in among the others... 
and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. The olive tree is the co- God's covenant commitment to the people of God. That's the olive tree. The nourishment comes from God's fulfillment to follow through on that promise. And the original branches on that tree are who? The Shemites. The Israelites. His chosen people initially. The ones that he chose among all people. That's the original branches. And he's explaining to them why all Jews aren't believing and how because of their unbelief, now the gospel is actually being engaged and brought to the Japhethites. Listen to this. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree of the covenant people, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Don't be arrogant toward the Jews. If you are, remember it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. It's the covenant that God made with his people that supports us, the graftees, the wild olive branches. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. Man, that's just crazy. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who've fallen, those Jews that rejected Christ, but God's kindness toward you, a bunch of wild olive branches that have responded in faith toward Christ, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? I know that's some heavy stuff. You may have never even read those passages before. I I can't say that I've really connected a lot of those dots before preparation for this study tonight. But it's worth going back and rereading again. Saying, I want to get this. I want to understand who the Shemites were. I want to understand who the Japhethites were. And it's then that you appreciate when, when Noah says that Japheth, you will live in the tents of Shem, that you will realize that you, we're stuck to an olive tree next to branches that are original, and we're graftees. And you'll understand how we live in their tents. And you'll embrace that and enjoy that. And you'll enjoy a graceful, benevolent, benevolent God and at least extending it to the Japhethites. Now, The next thing, Noah as the model of righteousness. Turn to Hebrews 11, please. Hebrews 11, verse 7. It says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. I mentioned to you already that also Peter referred to him as a herald of righteousness. So he's faithful and he's a preacher and herald of righteousness. This guy is a picture. Noah is a picture of faithfulness. And his faith and his righteousness, you need to understand, was not mustered, but was given and granted to him by a sovereign God. It's not something that he conjured up because nobody can do that. Because no one's righteous, no, not one. And that includes Noah. But God reckoned him and God granted him with this sort of faith. 
Now consider, in this first few verses of chapter 11, I don't know if you've read this before, if you spent time there, the first three heroes of the faith, starting in verse 4, the first one is Abel, the next one is Enoch, and the third one is Noah. Now I want you to consider the continuum of faithfulness here and consider the consequences for these three. All three are faithful. Realize that. Abel, Enoch, and Noah. Abel believed God, and what happened to him? He's murdered. Okay? Enoch believed God. What happened to him? He didn't die. Abel believes God. He dies. Enoch believes God, and he doesn't die. Noah believed God, and what happened to him? He's preserved while everybody else dies, and then he dies at a ripe old age. The reason that ought to minister to you is because it's a prime example, a beautiful example, (laughs) that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. It's a beautiful, there's this worldly idea that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people, and that if bad stuff's happened to me, I must be doing something wrong. Or if good stuff happened to me, good stuff happened, I must be doing something right. But the biblical picture is different. You haven't read Job. You need to read Job and hear the, the counsel that his friends gave him. Bildad, Zophar, and who was the other one? Eliphaz. And then what was the last joker that chimed in? He was the last one. Wasn't he Eliphaz? Or something like Ill of something. These guys had some bad counsel, man. That's what their counsel was. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. Bad things happen to you, Job. You must be doing something wrong. But these guys, these three heroes of the faith, ought to show you that God is sovereign and he has a design and he has a plan. All three faithful men, a continuum of, of events, a continuum of outcomes. One of them experiences murder. The next one doesn't even die. <laughs> and then the third one sees everybody else die and then goes through this event with his sons. It must have been a heartbreak, but then dies at a ripe old age. Okay, Continuum, continuum of uh, faithfulness. You can't predict God's earthly plan for the righteous. The flood shows, this is the next one, the flood shows us that God saves the family. This just connects and resonates with our Sunday morning's messages. God connects and saves the family. There's a tremendous emphasis on family in this story. Noah's family, you hear it over and over again, his three sons and their wives, and even the animals are referred to as families, that they unloaded the ark by families. God has a special connection with family in this story. And now here's something that's important, though. While all benefited from Noah's faith and righteousness, each member of the family had to embrace that faith. You couldn't ride somebody's coattails on this story. Each member of the family was held responsible, too, or they wouldn't have been on the ark. A couple of passages to to note if you want to study this. Ezekiel 14, 14 is one. And the other is Ezekiel 20. I don't have a verse reference for that. Or maybe it's verse 20, 1420. 1414 and 1420. Consider this. Noah's sons and daughters-in-law faithfully turned their backs on friends and extended family and stuff and houses and land and closets full of shoes. That's right. Maybe the wives picking on ladies a little bit. They turn their, it could be gun cases full of guns too. 
They turned their backs on all that stuff and loaded up into the ark because they knew that was the right thing to do. And they were the picture of faithfulness. There's some verses just to share with you to jot down to look at later. Belonging to a holy family has wonderful blessings, but each member is accountable to God. Here's a couple of passages to look at. Genesis 19.26. Jot that down and look at it. Each one is held accountable for his own sin. Genesis 19.26. Another one is Acts 16.31 and 32. Acts 16.31 and 32. And while each is held responsible... There are some blessings toward the family when there's a faithful family environment. There's a couple of passages to look at. 1 Corinthians 7.14. I'm going to call it the blessings of the soil and the blessings of the environment at home. 1 Corinthians 7.14. And the other one is Peter, uh, I think it's 1 Peter 3.1-2. If it's not 1 Peter, it's 2 Peter 3.1-2. All right, two last notes and I'm going to cut you all loose. These are important. The flood educates us on God's sovereign work of election. It is a picture of election. I think the, di- the, the reason a lot of the contemporary church has a difficult time with election is because we haven't gotten to know the, the Yahweh of this, these Old Testament accounts. We had not got to know how, oper- how God has operated with his people. We read the story and we thought it was cute and we taught it to our kids, but we didn't get to know the God of the story and how he interacted. While the, o- the whole earth perishes, God preserves a covenant remnant. He did the same thing with Israel. Among all peoples of the earth, God chose Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. Look at it. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8. While the whole chosen nation walks away from God during Elijah's time, God preserves 7,000 who do not bend the knee to Baal. God preserves a remnant. He preserves a remnant through the Assyrian invasions. He preserves a remnant during the Babylonian exile. Look at Micah chapter 7, verse 18. That'll blow you away. I'm begging you to look at that verse tonight. Micah 7, 18. He preserves a remnant during the Babylonian exile. Micah 7, 18. He brings a remnant back to Jerusalem under Ezra and Nehemiah's leadership. That's just two books. Read them, Ezra and Nehemiah. And today he preserves even a remnant of ethnic Israel as a part of his church. Romans chapter 11, verses 5 and 6. That's the way God has interacted over the ages. I know it's hard for a lot of people to get their head and heart around, but man, it's all over it. The last theological point, and it's almost seven. I've got one minute left, and I'm going to use it. The last important theological point is the picture of capital punishment. This is a picture of capital punishment in this story. Established, this is established on the truth that all human beings bear the image of God. So when someone injures another, it's as if they've attacked God. So the offense of murder isn't against the victim or his family or against society, contrary to what our society tells us. The offense is against God. And so valuable is God's image that God will exact compensation from the offender, whether it's man or animal. That's how valuable the image of God is. The murderer does not come under the protection of the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, because the sixth commandment, properly translated, is thou shalt not murder. The state can take a life, and in fact, it should, in cases where someone has committed murder. Consider Romans 13.4. Just jot that down. Clearly, the government has the right to the sword, not the individual. 
The government has that right, and in fact, that responsibility. There's clear accounts that when someone takes a life and that is not reckoned and the recompense is not made, that there are consequences on the land. And those are biblical pictures. And yet, at the same time, there are protections for the innocent, that there must at least be two or three witnesses. And if the witness commits perjury, then they get the same punishment. How about that? Now, that'd be nice to incorporate. And then there's also the reality, at least in the biblical account, is that the witnesses must be involved in the execution. That'd be a deterrent, I'd say, against false um, treatment, false handling of it. Lots of important things from the flood. I hope you got something out of this. I know tonight was a lot more lecture-oriented than it was discussion. Um, When we come back, actually next Wednesday, we're engaging the neighborhoods around um, GCS. The last Sunday of the month, we're going to be worshiping at uh, GCS for mobile worship. And uh, we're going to be using their gym. And next Wednesday is the time that we're really as families. You know, we're talking about families that are declaring and telling you know, the nations, that we may be most family when we are taking the gospel somewhere or when we are representing God as the people of God, mobile, a foot, a voice. We may be most family when we are going to visit a neighborhood and just knocking on a door. This is what it involves, if you're wondering what it involves. You're not handing out some sort of tract or anything like that, trying to pressure somebody in anything. All you're doing is handing out a bulletin or a little flyer that says when we're worshiping, where we're worshiping, and here's how it goes, something like this. Hey, my name is Ben McGraw. I'm from Crosspoint Fellowship. We're going to be worshiping as a church at Greenville Christian School on Sunday at 1045 or whatever time we will nail down, at 1045. If you're not in a church home, we would love to have you. Have a great night. That's not hard. That's not hard. You know, I realize it is going to be dark next Wednesday night, and I don't want to do that. So that just hit me. So I think we'll actually do that on Saturday morning. So we'll study Genesis next Wednesday night. See how easy that was? We didn't have to consult the committee. No committees, yeah. We didn't have to go to the committee on committees and make that decision. So next Wednesday night, we'll be in, back in Genesis. I know, I know, I know, I know. There's a ripple effect then. Well, it's easy to change. I know it impacts everybody, so. But I at least let y'all know that. A couple other things to be aware of. The last Sunday of the month is our mobile worship that morning. That night is our annual membership meeting where we just kind of look back at the year that's happened and anticipate what's in store. We do that every year the last Sunday of the month in January, and that's for membership. And then also the first Sunday in March is our annual membership renewal. And uh, just, just some dates to be aware of, special dates in the life of the church. And um, if you're not a member, you want to know what that's all about, you can talk to me or any of the other elders. And uh, please, please know this is not like a push for membership drive. It's not a head counting event. It's not high attendance Sunday or anything ridiculous like that. It's just quality commitments by the people of God to each other. It's accountable fellowship. That's what membership is. Don't make too much of it. Um, don't make it into something that's man-made. It's not really a man-made thing. It's just a intentionality. So... Uh, appreciate y'all hanging there tonight. I hope y'all had a good study in, Gen- in um, the flood account with me. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you so much for these pictures, these um, just heavy-hitting, huge, important pictures from the flood account. Lord, we'll thank- we're thankful for the, um, 
these stories, how they just keep speaking, and we know that if we sat on them and chewed on them tomorrow, they would continue to speak new things, deep things, truths that shape us and fuel us. Lord, we pray that we'll be shaped and fueled by these sort of things and that we will thinking rightly, that we will do rightly, and we will love rightly and worship rightly, that we'll write songs, uh, that we will ascribe, that we will tell and declare, that we'll kneel and bow, and that we'll worship and um, get on our face. Um, Lord, just, just pray that you'll work, these, work this in us as we pursue living out these verbs and collecting adjectives along the way. Just pray that you'll be glorified. We love you so much, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks, y'all.